Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's Athea Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. I'm so glad you guys are here, and I'm so grateful that you're listening today. We are sitting down with Coach Andrew Blackwood. He goes by Coach Drew. He was one of the first guests we actually ever had on the podcast. And uh, it's actually kind of funny. When I started this podcast, I, I ventured out to do like a seven-day-a-week podcast. It was a little bit much for me. And then I, I really didn't want to do interviews because it just felt like so much work to line up the interviewer and it's so much longer whereas I, I can just do seven you know 10 minute episodes and it was pure bliss and yada 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 anyway I, eventually at some point I was like okay um, this is not about me this is about providing value to my listeners and I realized what we could accomplish if we got some legitimate guests in here and so Andrew was kind enough his his interview I was going back through the archives I think his first interview with us was episode 50 let me pull it up here was episode um oh i'm i'm uh, i'm struggling to find it here there it is hold on yes episode 39 oh not even in the 50s he was episode 39 and here he is coming back today on the episode we are 550 plus um i'm not sure exactly what uh what episode number this will be but it's cool because i've grown so much even as an interviewer we were talking about this off camera and we got to an amazing place in this conversation today. So we really had three things that we talked about. We talked um, all in the context of healthy relationships and healthy self-management. So we talked about anxiety and sort of poking holes a little bit and like, is, uh, is anxiety actually worse now than it was before? Is that an illusion or is there some merit? We talked about how to help somebody else through anxiety and how often we don't have great responses and it actually makes an anxious person more anxious. And we talked about the things that we can do uh, if you know, you're kind of more in the supportive role that could really bring a lot of value to a situation. And then we talked about apologies. So if you've ever made an apology to someone and you feel like, man, I did all the right things there and it still didn't make things better, then you really need to listen to this framework he provides and sort of the philosophy around it as well. And it's something I really appreciate about Andrew is he does not just give the frameworks and say, all right, here's kind of the cookie cutter thing, go and run with it. He really spends a lot of time laying a foundation, getting your head in the right place, making sure the priorities and the values are all aligned, and then he'll give you the framework. And so it's impossible for you to not apply what you learn here so long as you follow everything that we lay out and see some improvement in your own personal development and or your relationships as well. So I know you're going to love this interview today. Uh, I think that's everything I needed to mention. So let's get into it. Here's my interview with Andrew Blackwood. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. All right. Well, I'm here with the legendary Andrew Blackwood. Uh, no stranger to the show. He's back for a second round here. You've done a call with our clients before too, man. So we all know who you are. Welcome. Glad you're back, Thanks. man. Thanks, brother. I appreciate being here. <laughs> um, well, we, I mean, you and I could chat for a very long time about a lot of different things, but I've loved what you've been up to lately, talking a lot about anxiety, a very prevalent subject in our society. Um, and then as well, you know, uh, parenting, we're going to hit a little bit on apologies today as well and the importance of that in, you know, fostering healthy relationships and all of that. 
maybe as as a starting point, I, I think it'd be cool to start with anxiety. What are you observing in in your work these days? And I I guess what I'm curious, maybe even before we get into the more like clinical or practical parts of dealing with anxiety, I'm just curious about the trends. Do are you noticing any difference from maybe 10 years ago? Is anxiety actually on the rise? Are people more anxious and not sure how to deal with it? Or is that just a, a media headline that's getting clicks, but not necessarily substantial? Well, I, I definitely think it's true. But I don't think people have ever really known how to deal with it. Hmm, interesting. So given what's happening in our world, the existing experiences of anxiety are just intensified. It's mm-hmm. not that they're new. <laughs> They've yeah. always been there. But now there are larger concerns and less, uh, less, less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Less bandwidth huh. to deal with this additional stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, the, the lack of control that we have in the world has always been real, but it's never been so painfully obvious. Huh. Right? Interesting. It's never really impacted us. Like people lost their jobs. People lost the opportunity to decide what to do with their own bodies. Right. right. This, 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 <laughs> this is this is like a life world changing event, yeah. but it didn't suddenly just give people anxiety. So anxiety has always been around and for many years people haven't dealt with it but now it's just there's just yeah. more of it to deal with more situations are there are there other elements that are new to our existence at this point in time because even something like people losing their jobs not again not to to you know denigrate that because it's it's obviously significant it does appear though if you look at world history that happens every i don't know 8 to 12 years like going through a financial crisis or hard economic times is not necessarily novelty, but then are there elements like technology or uh, are we getting, I don't know, are we getting worse at relationships and managing our lives or, you know, like, are there other things like that that are playing in as well? Or is it more, more just world events? You know, I do think that there's this trans transgenerational process. So the less that the generation deals with their stuff, Mm. is the harder it is for the next generation. Yeah, right. So, and it doesn't really matter what it is, whether we're talking about anxiety, depression, substance abuse, any kind of addiction, it just moves from one generation to the next. Yeah. So that's definitely an additional factor, right? The last generation, if people weren't resolving their things, if they weren't understanding, then it gets translated to the next generation not yeah. just genetically, but even, you know, socially, the things that we talk about, the things that we don't talk about in our families. So if there's a pattern of, let's say we're talking about secrecy around an affair or or pornography or something like that, that's an area that we won't talk about with our children. Right. That's a gap that leaves everybody else to fill in for us. So that's another way that this thing gets passed on. Just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Yeah. In in fact, it's more likely to happen when you don't talk about it, when you don't resolve it. And then there are spiritual realities that, you know, the enemy is never going to give up. So a generational (laughs) pattern, he's going to try to influence it any way he can. So those are two other factors that are contributing to what we experience as well as, you know, what's happening in, in our world. 
what are the indicators that somebody is dealing with anxiety? And because I, I, I know there's obvious ones, but I think there's also some more covert ones I've heard you talk about because, you know, somebody can be very high functioning and incredibly anxious. And I find that fascinating because I, I, for me, I think I would, I would be much more in that category when I am experiencing anxiety, people can't necessarily tell because on the outside, it looks like, you know, I'm managing relatively well. What, what's the gamut of symptoms for somebody who's experiencing anxiety? Well, sure, there are physical symptoms, physiological sensations that we have, and it's different for different people. Some people, when they feel anxious, uh, their mouths dry up. Some people have to go to the washroom. Some people, they're unable to sleep. Um, and then sometimes we have coping strategies for the anxiety that we feel. So hmm. the two behaviors or choices might not, the two experiences might not look connected, but they are. So okay. if someone, you know, is feeling anxious, um, speaking with someone today, what do they do to cope? They drink. Now, you might not look at somebody who's drinking and say, oh, they're, they're, they're anxious or they're feeling anxious, but that's one of their coping strategies. So that could be a sign of anxiety. Somebody might be controlling. They might seem angry all the time, or they might feel hurried. They might be working incessantly. These are can all be in reaction to anxiety. So what is anxiety? Anxiety is not just an emotion. It's an emotion we feel when we have a negative picture of the future. Huh. So people think we use the term, I have anxiety, because there is a disorder or a diagnosis, and it makes us think that it's far removed from a process that is happening. Like I'm experiencing anxiety. I don't have anxiety. I'm experiencing anxiety because yeah. of these factors. Now, of course, we live in a world with so many varieties of experiences and, you know, so yes, there can be a genetic component for sure. There's the, there's the nature, but then there's also the nurture. We, it's important that we learn to nurture our nature, know who you are. I know that I am more, what is it, prone or disposed to anxiety. That's just, that's just me. When the teacher asked me in, in grade three, what's your favorite number? I'm panicked. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? What's my favorite number? I'm supposed to have a favorite number. I'm listening to all these other kids. They got favorite numbers. So I'm like, okay, five, I'll pick five. And then I go away from that conversation saying to myself, what do I do with this number five? So I started trying to use this number five, but it didn't feel right because it was unbalanced. <laughs> so I would take five sips, but I'm like, no, this doesn't feel good. I have to take five more because I, I, I would take five steps. That doesn't feel good. I got to take, if I did something on one side, I did something you know that that's kind of like OCD-ish, right? That is right. That's full blown. Um, <laughs> that had nothing to do with the question. That had everything to do with the fact that I was in a new environment, new kids, new school. There was a lot of change and I was stressed out. And it when that happens for me, well, happened in the past, then I would experience these experiences um, expressions of that anxiety in OCD like um, manifestations. Huh. So that that nobody taught me that. That's <laughs> that's my nature. I can accept that. But now that I know that, it's an opportunity for me to nurture my nature. 
How do I deal with stress? How, you know, what happens to me? What am I engaging in? How am I envisioning this? So even though I was stressed about the situation, it was a stressful, because there's a difference between stress and anxiety. The situation was stressful for sure. Okay. But that triggered my anxiety. So now how am I thinking about the situation? I have to figure out what to do with this or else, right? I got to find something to do because... I have to do something with this. Like I have to, this is an indication of anxiety. When there's this internal pressure, these beliefs that I have to do something, I need to do something. If I don't, what if I don't do, what is going to happen if I don't? That's mm -hmm. one of the top five negative thought patterns. What if, what if, what if, what if negative? So I'm primed for that and stress can induce that way of thinking. But now that I know that, I know how to respond to those what ifs. I know how to respond to those different patterns. So my my anxiety doesn't continue to escalate and continue to manifest in different ways. So I'm nurturing my nature. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, did I hear you right before you said um, anxiety is when we have a negative picture of the future? I think I heard somebody say as well that depression is when you are dwelling in the past. Like depression often deals with the past. Anxiety often deals with the future. Um, I guess to, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, I guess how much you'd stand by that statement. Would you agree then that if you, if you never had a negative picture of the future, you would never experience anxiety? Well, again, stress can feel a whole lot like anxiety. If you okay. think about the physiological sensations, when you are stressed, your heart rate goes up, right? right? You might be breathing faster. There's a lot of similarities. So when people feel anxious, I think sometimes they're not even really fully aware of what they're feeling anxious about. Yeah. Often when, we, when I work with people, the process of addressing that anxiety often involves bringing awareness to what's beneath the surface. They might feel that anxiety, but they don't know what it's attached to. Huh. And I've never worked with someone where they've experienced anxiety and never come to a realization, oh, that's what I'm worried about. Oh, that's what I'm imagining. Oh, because hmm. when they deal with it, when they bring it to the surface, it's so much easier to resolve yeah. because then they can engage with a very critical analysis uh, right. But when it's beneath the surface, they can't. So I have never met anyone who's been feeling anxious um, without the thoughts. That said, there are, other, there are other biological chemical things that can happen in the body that would trigger and induce anxiety. An right. example for me is gluten. When I, I eat gluten, I have a non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It messes me over. My speech is slurred. My I, I have excessive daytime sleepiness, mood instability, irritability, and my anxiety is just, you know, um, I feel anxious. I feel irritable. I feel sad. I feel extra happy. Like, it's just all over the place. <laughs> so generally speaking... When we want to address anxiety, we want to be aware of how we're picturing the future. But to say that we can never experience anxiety without those pictures, I wouldn't say that that's true. Yeah. But in all of my experience of supporting people, the way to deal with it has been addressing those thoughts and those imaginations. 
So what what should somebody be doing when they are in that position? So they're saying, okay, Andrew, I, I'm def- that's me. I mean, I'm sure everybody listening is saying that's me to some degree of, you know, I, I know I have anxiety. And, you know, it, for our audience's sake, when I deal with anxiety or when I experience anxiety, that's when I feel tempted to go to pornography because that's when I can I can feel temporarily regulated again or I can get some degree of solace. What what would it look like if somebody is responding to anxiety appropriately? So there are three things that are critical and important or essential, however you want to describe it, when it comes to a healing process. Okay. Awareness, tolerance, and intentionality. So you're feeling anxious. That's great. You're aware that I'm feeling anxious, but we want to be able to understand what's causing me to feel anxious. What are the contributing factors? We want to open our awareness. I I journal every day. And when I'm having challenging days, I journal multiple times a day. (laughs) So, that's an option to increase awareness. You can use a, you can just do a a little brainstorm exercise, put feeling anxious in the middle, and then consider all the factors that are contributing to it. We want to increase our awareness because it's very rarely, if ever, just one thing. Mm. So we want to increase our awareness. Then when it comes to tolerance, when I say tolerance, I don't mean just accepting that we are feeling anxious. I mean, we want to learn to tolerate, learn to handle that feeling. We want to be able to not run from the emotion of fear or anxiety or any emotion. Right. We want to be able to tolerate it. And you will not be able to tolerate it if you never allow yourself to experience it. So when we cope, right, coping is not change. When we cope when we distract ourselves, when we remove ourselves and stop ourselves from being able to increase that awareness, increase that tolerance, it just makes it even harder. It tells us Mm. on some level, no, you can't handle it. You can't deal with this situation. Right. So we are never able to then turn and be intentional about it. Okay. So there's a difference between reacting and responding. Coping reinforces reacting. And I'm talking about especially unhealthy coping, right? Mm. There are healthy things that you can do to cope. But remember, coping isn't change. So mm. if I if I feel anxious and I got all this energy in my body, one of the things I can do is go for a walk. That's, right. a, that's a really good healthy coping strategy, but that's not going to fix the problem. It might relieve the anxiety, the tension in my body, the energy, the nervous energy. However, being intentional is not just going for the walk. It's saying, okay, what are the contributing factors? What was going through my mind? What am I really worried about? What am I imagining will happen? What mm. causes me to think that I'm not able to deal with that? Yeah. Then based on the answers to those questions, because often when we're feeling anxious, there are questions that float through our minds, but most of the times there, I call them questions in disguise well, statements in disguise. They're not really questions. So when you ask yourself, like, um, what's wrong with me? 
Right. That's not a real question. That's a statement. The statement mm -hmm. is something is wrong with me. I'm screwed up. I shouldn't feel this way. I'm broken. Like there are all these statements which are beliefs. And if we're not aware, what we're going to do is reinforce these ideas, which reinforces the anxiety. And is reinforcing them in that case like you're, you're dwelling on the thoughts, you're returning to them, you're acting on them? What exactly does it look like when we're reinforcing these thoughts? So most of the times we're not aware of it. So okay. the more we repeat these ideas, like I'm broken, I'm never going to be like, this is never going to work. Oh, I suck. We're reinforcing that belief. So yeah. when we have a belief, it resonates or resounds this, these emotions. So if you tell yourself, I suck, I'm not worth it. This is never going to work. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel hopeless. You're going to feel unworthy. You're going to feel worthless. You're going to feel inadequate. And then what do we do when we feel those things? We live from that place, hmm. right? We do things again to cope, to deny those feelings, to move away from them, or we pretend and we try to overcompensate, but that doesn't work either because deep down what we have told ourselves, what we've believed, what we've rehearsed, yeah, right? What, what what we rehearse internally, we perform externally, right? right? So that's how we reinforce this stuff. So most people who are doing um, living lives that they're not in alignment with, they don't want to live this way. They don't understand the beliefs that are driving it. Hmm. And I and I and I know you know this. Um, so I'm I'm here singing to the singing to the choir, preaching oh, this to the is choir. But... Bread and butter, I love it, loving mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. So I want to I want to maybe um, kind of dovetail this into an area that you've been focused on, which is helping children. Sorry, helping parents work yeah. with their children when they're experiencing anxiety. And I know that that in of itself will have a direct application for some of our listeners. And I know that for other listeners, maybe it's not a child, but maybe it's a loved one. It's a family member. It's a friend that they're helping or they're trying to be a support when they're experiencing anxiety. This is this was new territory for me three and a half years ago when we got married, maybe a little bit before Shalom and I got married. And uh, we've, we've shared about this before on the podcast, you know, about her working through that and me trying to figure out how to actually support her because the way that she even responds to anxiety or experiences it is so different from the way I do. What what are your tips or how are you guiding parents when their kids are experiencing an anxiety? What can they do to be a good support and to help their kids reach a more regulated state? So I have this program called the Confidence Cultivating Pro Parent Program. And what it does is it teaches how parents how to experience peace there's a framework of peace that we move through hmm. um and we start with prayer so prayer is not there's different kinds of prayer as i imagine that you know most people know but when it comes to things that concern us we typically do the uh begging god kind of prayer hmm. God, please help, please deliver, please change. And what we start with with parents is 
acknowledging their own anxiety in that moment. Hmm. When I'm begging God on some level, it's not just, I don't doubt that God has the power. Sometimes I doubt that he will use that power to answer my prayer. Yeah, right. And if we're doubting that he will answer, we're actually envisioning and imagining him not answering. Right. So on the one hand, we're saying, God, help. On the other hand, we're imagining that he's not helping. And that causes us to feel anxious. And James tells us, when we ask God for something, wisdom, for example, expect that he will give it to us. But don't right. expect that he will answer that prayer if we are unstable and we're not expecting and not believing him to answer. So how do we do that? God help me, but he might not help me. God help me, but... And what's good about this, being in that position, yeah, is you can appreciate what it's like for your child. <laughs> right. It's a blessed burden to feel anxious as a parent because you can get it. Yeah. So we want parents to learn, okay, I'm feeling anxious. Okay, this is, it makes sense. I'm imagining this. So let me learn how to shift how I'm praying so I can imagine, I can anticipate God coming through. And we work on creating a picture, a vision, a prayer. We call it every parent's prayer. And they can go to everyparentsprayer.com and download the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the guide. But essentially, that forms the basis. And mm -hmm. I teach parents that definition of anxiety, a picture, a negative picture of the future that you feel in your body. It's like watching something negative on the screen. So when they start to understand this, they can actually start to empathize with their children. Once again, what we were talking about earlier, it's important for us to learn how to be able to tolerate our anxiety so we can be intentional in the moment because yeah. worry leads to hurry. When we are worried for our kids, we want to hurry them through a process. You need to get over this. <laughs> you need to fix this. Because if you don't fix this, your life is going to be really difficult. Mm -hmm. And what we don't realize is that reaction is going to intensify their experience of anxiety. Wow. We have good intentions, but the impact is what we really want to focus on. Yeah. So it's it sounds like the... Act, like the actual way to help somebody that you love, that's close to you, that's experiencing anxiety is first by dealing with your own anxiety, either around the experience itself or just in general. Like you have to be in that place of peace to really actually impactfully show up for that other person who's experiencing anxiety. Am I hearing that right? You are hearing that right. When we are at that place of peace, we can move forward with peace or we can be still with peace. We can empathize with yeah. them in the moment. And a lot of people, you know, their anxiety causes them to think that if I don't see change right now, that means yeah. nothing is happening, which is not true. Right. Yeah. That And, it, and that, that is probably, for me personally, one of the hardest things is to remind myself that if it's not about getting that outcome or like you're saying, like rushing, rushing somebody through that process. Um, it really is about let, giving them that space and being able to bring your own safety to 
the environment so that they can work through their stuff and whatever that looks like and however long it takes that's that's the way it is you know and you you kind of deal with it i guess uh, a follow-up question to all of this because now that we're talking about sort of the same subject from a different angle uh the one thing that i'm hearing again and again is the importance of the imagination and all of this which is an incredibly relevant subject when we're talking about sexual sin because that's one of the things that guys will talk to us about the most is that, you know, I see somebody attractive. I can't help but, you know, imagine those thoughts, um, you know, that they get kind of out of control pretty quickly, the conditioning from pornography and all that stuff. Um, sometimes it's not even that. It's just, you know, our imaginations, are they can they can work in our favor and they can work against us. And that's true in a, you know, sexuality conversation. And it's certainly true in this conversation around mental health and anxiety. I And I guess I'm just wondering if maybe there's some parallels in how somebody can actually start to imagine what's better uh because i would i would have to think that if anticipating the future in a way that's causing anxiety is is sort of at the source of all this then surely someone would be able to find a way to imagine a better future or imagine the future differently in a way that could not only distill the anxiety but maybe or uh, or uh, dissipate the anxiety rather but actually give them a chance to feel hopeful and excited and 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 you know some of those those maybe more enjoyable emotions how how do you talk somebody through that aspect and and I guess I you know whether it's it's you're coaching a parent on how to do this with their child or maybe you're working with the parent directly what what should people be doing or what can they be doing to um to maybe convert some of those negative imaginations into something that's a little bit more useful for them okay so when I work with people, I talk about a, a a proactive plan as well as a responsive plan. Okay. So the way that you engage with someone and interact with someone when they're in the middle of experiencing intense anxiety is very different than you would when they're not. So let's talk about it from the person who is um in the situation let's say i'm feeling anxious and if i'm at the height of my anxiety it's going to be important for me it's like me being on a train that's going full speed right i want off the ride but i can't get off yeah. so it's going to be important for me to learn how to slow that train down so that i can get off and then move in a different direction you, you can't just like stop a moving train just like that, True. which is which is one of the reasons why we want to be able to learn to be aware of what we're thinking, tolerate the discomfort so we can be intentional and learning, okay, I actually I actually can pull this lever and slow down this train. Hmm. So you slow down the train by regulating your body, by breathing, by saying, okay, I'm feeling this way because I'm thinking this particular thing. Yeah. Now you develop that skill proactively outside of those moments right. when you're not feeling anxious. Yeah. That's when you do the homework. Yeah. That's when you're doing, you know, journaling. People think I journal only when I'm having a hard time. You don't build skills. It's like getting ready for a marathon. Do you wait till the day of the marathon to start training? <laughs> yeah. No. Right? right. You build the skill before you need it. So journaling on a regular basis, 
being aware of all different kinds of emotions, being able to define your thoughts and label the emotions and write things down. That's where we're practicing. So we want to be aware of what I call the big five. I'm doing a course called Conquering the Big Five. Um, okay. I, sh I share that with people because there are five different really significant thought patterns that promote anxiety in people. But if they're not aware of them, then they won't be able to recognize them in the moment. Hmm. So that's some of the work that people can do to be like, to recognize, oh, I'm thinking this. And I can tell this because, oh, this is what I'm saying, either to myself or to other people. Huh. Or when people say this to me, this triggers anxiety for me. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the phrases, I'll give you an example of a phrase. I call it, there's negative motivational language and positive motivational language. Okay. So negative motivational language is language that we use when we want to really encourage people and emphasize something and stress something. So we would say things like, you need to do this. You really need to, you know, or we say to ourselves, I need to do this or I have to do this. I should do this. If I don't do this, all these consequences will happen. And right. what we don't realize is that kind of language fuels anxiety hmm. because what it does is it causes someone to believe that they don't have a choice, that they don't have power. Huh. And when people feel disempowered, they feel unsafe, vulnerable, and all those other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So if we tell people what, you really need to do this, you really should do this, what happens is it triggers their anxiety or when we tell ourselves those things. And what's interesting is that language dovetails with one of the big five, which is black and white thinking, all nothing thinking. I don't have a choice. I need to. I can't not do this, right? Yeah. I can't slow myself down. I can't deal with anxiety. I can't. That word can't is an example of an absolute. Whenever right. you use that word, 99% of the time, you're going to be wrong. Yeah. But 99% of the time is also going to fuel anxiety. So being aware of this is one of the things that people can do proactively to recognize, okay, when I say this to myself, it triggers these emotions for me. So what can I do differently? How can I speak differently? How can I speak to others, myself differently? And that will really make a big difference. So when it comes to being a person who's supportive, yeah, when somebody is in heightened state of anxiety, we don't want to expect them to just get off the train. We want to be with them in a way that helps slow the train down. Yeah. And then in other parts of our lives together, we want to be aware of the language that they use as well as the language that we use. If you hear them saying things like, I need to do this, to be honest with you, you don't have to necessarily tell them not to say that. You can actually rephrase it by saying, I hear that that's really important to you. You want to do that. So when are you going to do it? Right. When are you going to choose to do it? You start to use positive motivational language, which is empowering. They get to choose. They can choose. They yeah. will choose. Yeah. It honors them. You're not changing the, the situation. You're changing the emotional and psychological tone and context yes. simply by being aware and now by being intentional. Yeah, and it's actually incredibly liberating, especially for somebody who's 
maybe got tendencies like me to to like to be a little bit overbearing, a little bit solutions oriented, a little bit like drive trying to drive the boat forward when it doesn't really need to be driven forward. I actually find that super liberating. Like when I when I do have the presence of mind to remind myself in those moments, um, it takes the pressure off me because often I'm feeling that pressure of like. I need to fix the situation. And that's that's usually, well, it's never the case, actually. Um, and so it, it is quite liberating. And I was I was smiling when you were talking about the all or nothing thinking because I, I do a monthly coaching call with our clients. And oftentimes when they present their situation, it's fascinating how many times they have, they've, you know, they got the problem, they started working through it, and they concluded, should I be doing this or should I be doing that? And it kind of feels like they have to choose between the lesser of two evils. And usually all it takes is one or two questions, a bit of dialogue. And it's very obvious that there's a whole plethora of other options that that are available to them that they just didn't consider because they were you know, crippled by the anxiety of the situation, maybe a little bit blindsided. They somehow fell into this kind of you know black hole of all or nothing thinking. And it was compounding the situation unnecessarily. So I love that you went there. Could you tell us what some of the other significant thought patterns are? I think you said there's five of them, right? So the first is black and uh, black and white thinking. Yes, yeah. The first is black and white thinking, and the the second um, that we move through is negative what ifs. Okay, and this happens so commonly. In in one sense, considering possible negative outcomes is helpful and healthy. It, it helps us to plan. It helps us to uh, consider and to evaluate and to, you know, course correct. We know that it's becoming unhealthy, however, when like that train analogy, we, we, we can't get off. Hmm. And it's, it's accelerating. It's going faster. And it moves from one thought to the next and to the, before we analyze the first situation we've already leaped and now, now we're year two into our future now we're year three into our future and four and we and it's it moves to catastrophizing hmm. what if this what if this what if this what if this and that's when we know that it's not healthy so what's what's interesting is um it dovetails then with the first because now it's so extreme. Now, if this doesn't happen, then nothing is going to work. I won't ever be able to get out of this situation. They will never forgive me, right? It's it's now, it's gone from what ifs to this is, <laughs> right? It is entirely. So yeah. that that's another example. Yeah, yeah. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And I think, again, very, very common. Is there... Uh, I, I want to play devil's advocate for a minute. Is there is there a world where having those kinds of thoughts is useful? And where I've heard, I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with this, but where I've heard it often um, in these kinds of conversations, we have a mutual friend, Seth Dahl, and I um, I've seen him get grilled for some of his philosophies around parenting because it seems so soft. And especially some of the more, uh, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to maybe typecast with a particular label, but some of the guys who feel like I don't want to raise a soft kid, you know, I don't I, like, I like the pressure. That's what made me great. Or, you know, that's like, look at Michael Jordan. Like if he didn't have this kind of pressure on himself 
and he was forcing himself to be, you know, the greatest and to keep pushing the bounds, um, he would have never done what he did and became the person he became. Um, what what would you say to somebody like that who who's saying, "Hey, I hear what you're saying. You know, we don't we want we don't want to create or or drive our kids down to the ground, or you know, we don't we don't want to be unhelpful in these situations when our loved ones are experiencing anxiety." But for somebody who maybe thinks this is, but this is how I get the best out of my team, my wife, my kids, uh, whoever it is. What would you say to somebody who's who's thinking that way? I I would say that that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you might. Yeah. Oh, here, here, here's why. There is enough hardship in life that our children will run into. Mm that they will have to deal with. They don't need you to be hard on them. They don't, they don't need it. Um, because what happens is, again, we're thinking about our intentions and we're not thinking about the impact. Mm, your intention okay. is to, to make your child uh, stronger, but what you actually doing is telling your child, you can't trust me to be safe and vulnerable here. Yeah, I'm not right. actually going to pay attention to what's really going on in your heart. What I'm after is the result, right? right? I Well, yeah, I, I push my team. Sure, you'll get certain results with your team. But what happens on a heart level? Sure, Michael Jordan, whatever, he won these, you know, and again, that's not necessarily because he had this internal dialogue that was beating him down. I think he had an internal dialogue that was probably building him up. Yeah, true. But, you know, I, again, but we also look at these heroic feats of performance. But who is he? And I don't know, but who is he behind closed doors? That's the question. Right. Are you parenting for this performance-based uh, presentation of who your child is? Or are you parenting to cultivate who God has called this child to be? Right. How does God deal with us? Yes, there's hardship in life. Yes, God allows us to stand in the middle of things. But what does God do? He stands with us. He joins us. He gets into the pit with us and says, I'm here. Hmm. Right? Yeah. He says, okay, so where, do, what, what, where are we going to go from here? I'll show you the way. Let's take this step. Right. And sometimes he says, okay, Andrew, you have two choices here. What are you going to choose, death or life? But he <laughs> empowers me to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And that, that makes perfect sense to me. So let's, let's kind of, um, I, I want to anchor this into the art of a genuine apology because you have really built a, an incredible framework that every, single person on the planet needs in probably many facets of their life. We we are constantly running into relationship conflict. And I think that's a beautiful thing, actually. I'm, I don't think conflict is something to be afraid of. I think the reason that conflict becomes scary is often because we lack the resources, the skills, or in this case, the frameworks on how to really handle it effectively. And to me, the art of a genuine apology is one of those frameworks that really give people a chance to go into, uh, you know, discord or tension in a relationship and feel confident, you know, feel confident that if they follow it and execute, that it's going to lead to a positive outcome for um, their the connection, you know, whether we're talking about parent, child, husband, wife, 
you know, a boss and their employee or whatever it might be. So um, to me, this is like the perfect way to kind of cement all this because we're talking about anxiety and how it affects our behavior. We're talking about how to talk somebody, uh, a loved one through maybe their anxiety and be in the more supporting role. And inevitably, throughout all of these experiences that we've laid out so far, uh, an apology will be necessary somewhere along the way, whether it's on the giving or the receiving end. Can you talk us through the maybe the nuts and bolts? We don't have time to, to go in the depths of it. And that's why you have your book, which everybody should get a copy of. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but, but maybe we can give a little bit of a taster here for the audience to get an idea of what a genuine apology really looks like. Sure. So... When I say a genuine apology, I don't mean just being sincere. <laughs> I mentioned earlier the difference between uh, the intention and the impact, mm. because we can sincerely want to move past this moment. But really, sometimes we just tell people to get over it, like, yeah. you know, or we say sorry just to move past it. But we're really, really not sorry about what we said or what we did so um, and even if we are sincerely sorry about what we did that's still not enough so what makes a genuine apology different than a sincere apology is the focus that's one of the things what is our focus is our focus on healing their hurt or is our focus on getting out of the doghouse or is our focus, <laughs> right? Or rebuilding the relationship. You know, if our focus is reconciliation, that is a good thing. But that can't be the priority. The priority is addressing the other person's pain at all costs. If the relationship doesn't get reconciled, if they never forgive you, would you still offer this apology? Would you still take responsibility? Would you still say, you know what? I see how my actions have hurt you. And that's not what I want for you. I want better for you. I want more for you. What can I do to help heal that pain? That's the focus of a genuine apology. Hmm. So there are some steps. However, if we walk through the steps and try to walk through the steps without appreciating the focus, and the purpose of the genuine apology, then it will always go wrong. There are yeah. five values woven into a genuine apology. And if any one of them are missing, it's not going to meet the mark. Hmm. Humility. Being humbled. Humiliation and humility are not the same thing. I talk about that in the book. There's a big difference. <laughs> humility just owns that I'm not perfect. It will enable us to acknowledge where we've gone wrong. That's really, really important. It will allow us to approach the person with this, maybe this is not the right word, but with, with, an, with a reverence. Yeah. Not just, okay, well, fine, I got to do this. Yeah. You know? No, no, they, they are worthy of this offering that you're going to give them. Um, then another value is uh, empathy. We want to be able to experience on some level what they've experienced. 
which helps us move from a place of regret to a place of remorse. Hmm. Big difference. We regret what has happened, but remorse is when we feel sorrow for the other person, for the pain that we've caused the other person. Right. Empathy enables us to tap into the impact that we've had on them. Yeah. And a lot of the times, because we're different people, we don't really appreciate how, you know, well, I didn't have sex with anybody else. I just, but how does that impact the other person? It's not about what you think and how you feel. Yeah. What is, what kind of loss is that other person experiencing? Hmm. they've waited for you all their lives. They've had expectations and hopes that you would fulfill. It yeah. might be unrealistic, but regardless, that <laughs> was what they were hoping for. And that's yep. gone now. Yep. It's, it's important to be able to step into that. Then there is responsibility. Taking responsibility being able to identify clearly. And one of the easiest ways to do that, and I talk about this in the online course for The Art of a Genuine Apology, is if you do not feel proud of how you engaged or what you've done, immediately there's something that you can apologize for. Hmm, wow. If you could do it over again, and you would do it slightly differently, there is a chance there's something there for you to apologize for. People often are hesitant to apologize because they use the all or nothing thinking. If I apologize, that means it's all my fault and I never meant a word of what I... No, 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 no. You can apologize for the tone. You can apologize for the timing. You yeah. can apologize for telling a half truth. You, there's so many things. You can apologize for not showing up. You can apologize for not having a conversation You know, at a time where you could have. Right. So... Taking responsibility, um, recognizing that we all, and this ties with humility, there's no such thing as a perfect person. So if I can search for myself, I will find something that I can apologize for and that I can be genuinely and wholeheartedly apologetic about. And then there's accountability. Accountability is not something that I know a lot of people use this phrase and it's one of my least liked phrases in the world. We want to hold people accountable. Hmm. Hold right. people. No, that 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 sucks. It's it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Accountability is something that we want to choose. We hmm. get to choose. Right. I choose to be accountable because when it's about holding then it it reinforces this idea of like a a jailer like yeah. <laughs> i'm going to imprison you i'm going to force you i'm going to make you be accountable and that doesn't work in my estimation if it yeah. does it's not it's short lived because it's important for people to choose and when we choose accountability, I talk about this in one of the steps of offering a genuine apology. And this is one of the things that people don't realize. If you don't have a plan of what to do differently, you're going to find yourself in the same situation again. Right. A, pr a promise is very different than a plan. Yes. <laughs> so we make promises and we know we, don't, we haven't kept them. Why? Because we didn't have a plan. And sometimes our plans, they're just not really good plans. Hmm. 
So when we talk about accountability, we want to be intentional about being aware of what contributed to me being in this place, doing this thing in the first place. Accountability is what you do when you you unpack it, you look at it, you say, oh, I understand. Oh, this is from my childhood. Oh, oh, wow. This, this is me. Mm. This, this had nothing to do with you. Mm. This had nothing. I own this. I'm yeah. accountable so that when we put our plan together, then we allow people to partner with us, right? Because we're going to be offering evidence that we are making progress. And this is another reason why most people's plans fail. It's because there's no action point on a regular basis that people can see every single day. Mm. Our promises are not plans and they're not well laid out. So there's nothing that the other person can see on a regular basis to track your consistency, to track your faithfulness, to track your growth. There's there's none of that. So they're always left like, do I trust him today? Do I trust her today? Like, do I? Do I? I can't. I can't. But a good accountability plan is going to have steps. And then the last value is um, vulnerability. Hmm. Because a very important step in offering an apology, yes, it's just it's being honest, but it's also being receptive and inviting the other person's feedback. Right. So those are the five values. And then there are four steps. Okay. And I don't know if we have time for the four steps. Let's let's do the four steps. And then I think if people want to find out more, then they can they can get the book and go deeper into it. For sure. So the four steps follow a formula called the live formula, because when you offer a genuine apology, it will live on long after you've offered it. So the L is where you list specifically what you're apologizing for. You label it. I apologize for the tone that I used the other day. I, this is where you imagine the impact. And I imagine when I spoke to you in that tone, you felt belittled and embarrassed and, and probably really hurt and angry too. Mm. Then you move on to V where you verbalize a commitment to a plan of action. This is not where you explain why you did what you did. This is not where you explain why you told me I was tired. So I, you know, no, 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 no. Because an explanation as valid as it is, is going to sound like an excuse or a justification. So when you verbalize a commitment to a plan of action, you can say something along the lines of, when I'm finding myself irritated and angry, I'm going to be intentional to say, you know what, let me take a break from this conversation because I can feel, I can feel the upset rising. Let me come back to this. I'm going to come back to this in about 20 minutes. I'm going to go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I own that. That's my plan. It's totally within my control. And I'm saying, like, this is what I'm going to do. And then you can say, this is where the e, the e is. You extend an invitation for their feedback. And you say, I know what I did wasn't, wasn't caring. It wasn't kind. And I know you're hurting. Is there anything more that you want to say to me? Anything more that I can do? Is there anything that I missed? Because I want your to be healed mm. that's good 
That is really good. Man, we'll have to have you back again so we can actually go into this. This is awesome, man. Really good. And and I can just see how how a framework like this could be so useful, especially I was thinking about uh, the awareness piece that you were talking about earlier for handling anxiety. And for people who can cultivate the presence, I mean, if any, everybody can cultivate the presence of mind and have this, you know, kind of in their heads as something to follow when they are going through some kind of relational conflict. That is just incredibly valuable. So the the book is called The Art of a Genuine Apology. Um, and you have a course for this as well, don't you? That's right. That's right. It's The Art of a Genuine Op- Apology, the online course. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, cool. Where can people access this? And if they want to find out more about what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Just go to coachdrew.ca. I have a resource page so you can access the course there. Yeah. And info at Coach Drew is is the best way to reach me. You got it, man. So we'll put all that in the show notes. In the meantime, uh, Andrew, thanks so much for your time, your expertise. You're a gift to our community, man, and we really appreciate you. Oh, my pleasure. I love love conversations with you always. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I am so grateful I get to sit down and talk with people like Andrew. This, I mean, he is just like the kindest sounding man in the world, and he is chock full of wisdom. I learned a lot, and I hope you did too. I highly recommend you go get his book, The Art of a Genuine Apology. He's got a course with it. And this guy is so generous. He and I, I, I maybe didn't mention this in the pre uh, earlier part of the interview, but um, he and I hang out. Like he lives in the same city as me. I used to get therapy and coaching from him. And he is like, it's one of the things I poke at him. I'm like, dude, you should charge more for what you, for what you do. He gives it away incredibly affordably. affordably and it is such high value. My wife's done some of his courses and programs as well. So I just can't recommend it enough. If you resonated with his message uh, or him as a person, go check out his stuff. Check out the resource page. He does therapy. He's got a whole bunch of different programs himself um, or I, I therapy, coaching, whatever it is. Uh, I forget. I think he does a mix of both. Uh, but there's so much value to extract from this guy. And he really does like our audience. So I know he'll make time for you if he knows that you're coming from the podcast. And if maybe you're listening to this, you maybe a couple dots connected where you can see how anxiety is really fueling some of your struggles with pornography. I know that was certainly part of my story and a part of a lot of the clients we work with these days. Well, you have a chance to get some more help beyond this episode. We actually set aside time every single week to speak with listeners of this podcast specifically who really want to get some clarity on what it would look like for them to take some next steps and reach a place of full freedom. And, and we do that through our program called Deep Clean. So that's part of the goal of the call is to see if Deep Clean is a good fit for you, if it's something that you like and you're interested in. And if you think that it would be helpful for you, we could talk about some next steps. But in the meantime, we want to understand your situation and help you articulate what's going on so that you can get some clarity on what you need. They're super, super valuable calls. We don't charge anything for them. It's our gift to you guys. And if you click the link in the show notes to book a call with my team, you should find some slots available admittedly they're in pretty high demand right now and um, we're, we're doing our best to keep up with it but if you can't find a slot uh, then you can always reach out to us and email us we'll try to set something up uh, but in the meantime the link is in the show notes there love for you guys to check that out if you want some extra help quitting pornography full stop in the meantime gentlemen women children anyone who's listening to this thank you so much for your time thank you for listening today i hope you guys have an incredible day we'll talk soon bye-bye Hey everybody, it's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process 
and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Cynthia Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.